Please remain standing uh, for the reading of God's word. Um, today we will be reading from Psalm 130, um, if you will flip with me there. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Um, This coming Friday will mark four years of marriage for me and Amanda. Um, But on July 20th of this year, we realized that we've actually been together for 11 years, which is kind of crazy because that's over a decade. Uh, Now, I know that pales in comparison to to all of the elders in our church, um, but a decade is a long time to be with someone. Um, especially as, as we look back on all of the ups and the downs, all of the different life phases of transformation, um, and what I like to think is maturing, um, all of our different stages, the most blissful moments as well as the rough patches, dating, marriage, and then welcoming our first child into the world two weeks ago. Um, and as my mind plays through this, like, this slow-motion, retrospective, cinematic montage, um, I start pondering questions like, man, what will life be like when we're 60 or 70? And I'm sure that's a question you all think about every day, too. Um, when Amanda and I are, you know, when we're out on the town or on a date, uh, one of our favorite sites is elderly couples. Right? It's like, they're like so adorable. I think it's one of the most beautiful things that we get to witness as humans, um, especially when they're like still holding hands and walking really slowly, um, when they're like showing each other affection. Um, and when I see it, I, I, I start playing out these sort of these hypothetical storylines in my head, sort of projecting these narratives um, of, of what their lives might have been like. Um, the other day as we were leaving the hospital, um, an elderly couple was walking in. Um, the wife was walking just a little ahead of her husband, um, and they were dressed very similarly, as you know, elderly couples often do, um, and they just looked like a really nice elderly couple. But, but the husband had like, all these tattoos on his arms, um, and my mind went straight to, like, oh, man, I wonder, I wonder what they were like when they were younger. You know, I wonder what kind of people they were when they met, um, and I, I wonder what what stories his, his tattoos tell, you know? And I, and I wonder why they're here at the hospital. And I start thinking about things like, I wonder what they lived through together. I, I wonder what scars they bear or what hardships and wounds that they had to, to work through or maybe that they're still working through. Like, 
how many, how many rough patches and how many dry seasons did they have to endure together in all their years uh, together? And then as I reflect, I, I ask myself, how does one finish well? Like, how, how does one run the race of life and, then, and still finish well? Like, what will, what will I be like when I'm that age? I'd, I'd like to still think that we'll still be holding hands and showing each other affection and tenderness when we're, like, old and wrinkly um, and wearing matching bright T-shirts. Um, and then I go one step further. Like, after all those years, what will my relationship with God be like when I'm 60, 70, maybe 80? Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, um, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Will I be able to say that? In my old age, will I look back on my journey with God to see a life full of joy and fulfillment after years of love, of, of grace upon grace, of formation and of wisdom? Or will I be jaded, bitter, and burnt out? Will I enjoy God's love and presence more than ever, and in turn, love him more than ever? Or will I just be tired of it all? Will I be tired of a life of waiting on God? Will I finish well? How does one finish well? We are currently in our series titled Seasons, and two weeks ago we talked about seasons of stagnancy. Um, today I want to talk about a season of life that is very seemingly similar, yet markedly different, and that is dry seasons. Uh, the term dry season or dry spell might be lost on us, partly because it's sort of an agrarian term and no one here is a farmer. Um, and it's, it's obviously used to describe seasons where there's little to no rain. Um, but also because we live in the Pacific Northwest, where, where you know, most of the time we're like, man, I wish it would just stop raining. Um, but spiritually speaking, dry seasons are times in our lives um, when we just feel like God is completely distant or not there at all. We don't feel any connection to him. We don't feel his love, even though we, we hear about it all the time. We see other people talking about it all the time. Um, and then we, we, we find it hard to see his activity. And we don't feel like we hear him. It's as if he's completely radio silent. Um, now, just to recap our disclaimer from two weeks ago, uh, this is not the same as stagnancy. You know, in seasons of stagnancy, we don't feel connected to God. But at the same time, we're disconnecting ourselves from God. Um, God feels distant, but we are the ones keeping him at a distance. You know, we're, we're putting him in a box and putting that box like way over there. Um, and this is not the same as dry seasons. In dry seasons, we actually desperately want God. We want to hear him. We want to feel his love and experience his grace daily. But try as we might to position ourselves to receive, we, again, feel like all we get is silence from God. It feels like God is ghosting us. And this is really discouraging. You know, it's, it's even disheartening. And it's really rough. And then to make matters worse, being in a dry season feels alienating. 
You know, it, it makes us feel like, like something is wrong with us spiritually or that God is somehow upset with us. So he's giving us the silent treatment. And in, in our day and age, we're so indoctrinated by an achievement and results-based culture coupled with a dash of prosperity gospel, like I do this, so I should get that, that our faith journey or our perception of it becomes really distorted and, and misguided. And we have, we have all these wrong expectations about what relationship with God actually looks like. And so dry seasons feel like something wrong rather than something right, rather than something inevitable and something necessary even. And I would venture to say, and I hope you'll agree with me by the end of today's teaching, I would venture to say that God leads everyone he loves through dry seasons. Or in other words, God leads those he loves through the desert. And that doesn't make it sound any better, right? Um, But today, I want to clear up any misconceptions that we might have. And I want to reframe the whole notion of dry seasons. If what I've described so far sounds like your current experience, what if this season of your life is actually a very sure sign of God's love for you? What if it's a very sure sign that he's inviting you away from a life of shallow faith and into a life of true faith? And what if this tension and discomfort you feel inside is actually God doing something incredibly important and necessary for your soul? Sidestep that big question for a moment and consider this. Who here has ever prayed for patience? And after praying it, am I the only one who prays for patience or used to pray for patience? Um, Who here prays for patience? And then after praying it, who here finds that all of a sudden God zaps you with this power boost from heaven and you just have oodles and oodles of supernatural patience for everyone around you? Like you're driving in traffic and you're like, God, give me patience. And then suddenly like, Traffic jams feel amazing and you're just full of joy. Probably no one, right? It doesn't work that way. Um, Now, does this mean that God decided not to answer your prayer? You know, with, with our tendency to kind of oversimplify things and people, including God, we might think so. But let me tell you, I stopped praying for patience years ago because I found that every time I prayed for it, God would seem to lead me into situations where my patience would be tested even more. Like I'd pray for traffic and then there'd be like a car accident in front of me. Um, It was like, okay, God, I see what you're doing. I'm not going to ask for that anymore. Um, And this in turn was actually very formative because it revealed a crucial truth about me. It revealed the simple truth that I don't like waiting. I pray for patience, not because I actually want more patience, but because I just don't want to suffer through the pain of waiting, right? Now, who here has prayed for more faith? It's a a great thing to ask for. Who here has prayed for more faith? One person, awesome, two, three, that's so wonderful, I keep doing that. Um, And then again though, who has found that God just like zaps you with a dose of faith serum and all of a sudden you have supernatural faith in believing in Jesus and his death and resurrection and his forgiveness of sins and all of his promises, just no problem. Like, yeah, I totally believe that. Uh, And then like every day for you is just like Hillsong on full blast and you just, you're loving life with Jesus. 
probably no one. God doesn't work that way. Partly because it would actually kind of violate your free choice. He would essentially be changing your mind for you. But he also doesn't work this way because he loves you too much for that. And he has so many better ideas for you. So many better plans for you. But do you ever wonder what would happen if God did work that way? Like what if he did just answer every prayer with like exactly what we wanted? Like what if you prayed for more patience and then bam, a second later, you're the most patient person in the world. You pray for faith, and bam, supernatural faith. You love Jesus times 3,000. And then all of your idols, your vices, your temptations have no hold on you any longer. Like, What if God actually did that? What if God worked like that? Would we actually enjoy and love God more? Or would God be our glorified, divine vending machine? Would we love the giver or only the gifts, thinking that the gifts are the giver? Growing up, uh, I, was, I was a pretty privileged kid. Uh, I had all that I needed and then some. I lived in a well-to-do neighborhood. Uh, my parents treated me well and I was happy. But I do remember the things that some of my friends had that I could not have. Like, I remember spending the night at my friend's house and it was amazing because he had cable TV. This was before the days of Netflix. Uh, My parents never, ever let us have cable TV, no matter how much I asked. Um, And so whenever I was at my friend's house, I would just stay up until the wee hours of the morning just watching TV while he would be sleeping because I couldn't get that at home. Every time we'd be at a hotel on vacation, I would just like stay in the room and watch TV because we couldn't get like Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, none of that. I remember being the last kid to get a cell phone, and then the last kid to have a text messaging plan, if you can believe that. Um, And then the last kid to have a smartphone, and then the last kid to have an iPhone, because unlike most of you, I was an adult when I got my first iPhone. And and now that I'm a parent, guess what? I'm going to do the exact same thing to my kid. Why? You're like, oh man, I'm glad I'm not your kid. Why? Because over the years, I learned the love language behind my parents' decision to keep things like cable TV and cell phones away from me. I realized that I suffered maybe just a little bit less media addiction because I wasn't indoctrinated by the gods of media from a young age. Early on in my relationship with Amanda, I realized I was a terrible couch potato. I'd like, we'd, we'd, we'd sit down and try to watch more than two episodes of a show and I'd like get, I'll get, get all restless and get headaches because I was never allowed to spend long hours in front of a TV as a kid. And so things that were not fun then make a lot of sense to me now. And I can see the love behind it. My parents, in the best way they could, loved me in a way that would form me and equip me. And now, because I love my daughter, I'm going to do the same things. Oh, joy. It it doesn't mean I'm going to do everything exactly the same way my parents did. You know, some things got to go. But it does mean that real love is far deeper and far more complex than simply giving your child what they asked for in the way they wanted on the spot. That is not the job of a parent. And it simply isn't loving. So if this is my parenting instinct, 
Like, just imagine how much greater and how much more loving God's parenting style is. It says, Jesus states in Matthew 7, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We need to remember that God does not exist to give us everything we want. He loves us too much for that. God is out to draw us into relationship with him because he knows that that is the only thing that will truly, fully satisfy us. He knows this is our greatest need and our only true road to joy and flourishing. Second, God is out to form our character. Everything he leads us through is formational or rather transformational. And so, friends, we must keep these things in mind as we go through seasons of life, especially dry seasons, especially seasons of waiting and waiting. So back to my previous question. What if dry seasons actually assure us of God's love and work in us? Like, what if the terrible waiting game that is seasons in the desert, what if, they, what if they're actually proof of God's love and presence in our lives? Do we have evidence to back this up? Let's look at a couple case studies. Um, if you still have your Bibles open, turn with me to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, and we're just going to read the first couple verses here. Verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then jump to verse seven. To your offspring, I will give this land. God makes Abraham, who's, who's still Abram at this point, God makes him a promise. Abram's like, great, that sounds awesome, God. Yeah, I'll go. And he obeys and sets out from his homeland. Now, Abram is, is 75 years old at this point. Not exactly young. And God's essentially promising him descendants. So he's probably thinking, all right, honey, Sarah, God's going to give us a child very soon. He said so. Turns out. It's not so soon. It's years. And, and Abram and Sarah are, are not cool with the whole waiting on God thing. Very relatable. Uh, so they take matters into their own hands, which makes things very, very messy. Abraham is 100 years old when Isaac is born. So that's 25 years after the initial promise. That's a lot of waiting. And, and, and that's probably our first thought, right? Wow, that's a lot of waiting. Wow, Abraham had to wait 25 years. What might not be our first thought is, hmm, I wonder what happened in the waiting. Hold that thought. If you continue down Abraham's family line, what you'll see is essentially a generational waiting game. 
Jacob, who's Isaac's son, Jacob's life is a life of waiting, and a lot of it uncertain, nervous waiting. You know, from the start, he and his brother Esau don't exactly get along. A birthright and a blessing get stolen. Another long story for, for, for another time. Uh, Jacob's life then becomes a life of running away and waiting. Waiting in fear that Esau just might actually come and kill him. And then after being tricked into to marrying the wrong person, he has to wait to marry Rachel. That's another messy story that we don't have enough time for now. Uh, and then that, he has 12 sons after that. Man, it's not happy after that either. After he has 12 sons, the rest of his life is more waiting, thinking that his beloved son Joseph is dead. And we're talking years and years and years of waiting, waiting, and waiting. Moses, before being used by God to lead the Israelites out of, the, out of Egypt, spends 40 years in the desert. And then he leads the Israelites out of, the, out of Egypt, and then guess what? They spend another 40 years in the desert. Poor Moses, right? That's a lot of time in the desert. Hannah has to wait for a son in anguish, discouraged and disheartened before God gives her Samuel. And so friends, I hope you're seeing a trend here because that's all in like the first two books of the Bible. This waiting trend continues up to Jesus who doesn't start his ministry. He didn't start doing all of the teaching and the healing until 30 years into his life. And so the first 30 years of his life are spent in total obscurity. He's just like working as a carpenter with his human dad, Joseph. And then after the 30 years, not straight into ministry. There's the whole 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, fasting and praying, and then being tempted by Satan right after that. And it's only then that he starts his ministry. It's a lot of waiting. And just to cement the thread here, in Genesis 3.15, after the fall, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is a prophecy pointing to Jesus' victory over Satan, something that was accomplished on the cross, but we still wait for its final completion. Romans 8, Paul writes, for creation waits with eager longing the whole creation has been groaning. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All of creation is waiting for renewal. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but friends, as it turns out, the Bible is one big book of waiting. Has anyone ever thought of it that way? It's one big book of waiting, man. And as it turns out, though, dry seasons, seasons of waiting in the desert, put us in good company, right? Puts us up there with Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Jesus. All of the people and lives described in the Bible, all the people whom God loves, calls, transforms, and raises up for his purpose, at the heart of all their stories is waiting really doesn't sound glamorous. God led them into seasons of waiting, dry seasons, life in the desert, and they decided to participate. They decided to wait on God, and great things unfolded. And so why would we expect our journey to be any different? 
given the trend and the hallmarks of God's work throughout history, why would we want our stories to deviate from his beautiful narrative style? Now, as nice as that sounds, it still doesn't solve the problem of the waiting itself. As necessary as it is to our growth, waiting is still <laughs> unpleasant. Yet dry seasons are not fun. Life in the desert can be discouraging and even painful. And there's, there's no way around this. We're not going to puff it up and sugarcoat it here. But the important question to ask is this. What is happening in the waiting? What's happening in that waiting period? As we look to the lives of Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Naomi, Hannah, Elizabeth, Jesus, Paul, and so many others, we need to ask, what happened in that waiting? What happened in the desert? First, dry seasons lead us to confront our fears and desires. They lead us to confront our fears and desires. Abraham realized how much he actually didn't trust God. And we see that in the ways that he lied and prostituted his own wife. That's fear that God would not protect him. There was the fear that God might not actually deliver on his promise, which led Abraham and Sarah to take matters into their own hands, fathering a child by Hagar. And perhaps you could, you could say that this even reveals like maybe Abraham wanted the promise more than the promise maker. Psalm 130 verses 3 to 4 states, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. In the waiting, Abraham's desires and fears are revealed and purified. He messes up, but God shows him mercy. And he's then led deeper and deeper into trust and faith. And this is proven. It's proven by his readiness to give Isaac back to God, essentially. Second, dry seasons lead us deeper into relationships. Imagine what Abraham's story would have been like if God just gave him a son right from the start. Who would he be then? Would he be the same father of our faith, Father Abraham? If Jacob had his way right from the get-go, would he still have wrestled with the angel? Would he be less of a, of a, of a deceiver? When Phoebe, our baby, was, was still in Amanda's womb, when her future was just up in the air and uncertain, when the trauma of our, of our previous miscarriages still lingered like ghosts in our heads, I fasted and I prayed for days, weeks, and months for God to just let her live, for God to protect her, care for her, and grow her in miraculous ways. And now that she's safely delivered, like how in the world? I could say that I'm busier because we're constantly juggling life as, as working NICU parents, running back and forth between home, work, the hospital. But it really reveals the honest truth that my desperation has, has waned a little. You know, though I, I, I celebrate God's miraculous work, 
I'm filled with gratitude and joy and I share the stories again and again and again, you would know. The truth is, I've spent less time in prayer, less time alone with God, and I'm talking with him less, and I'm pleading with him less. And so I, I, I loathe to think that my relationship with him, I, or I loathe to think what my relationship with him would be like if it was just seasons of joy all the time. Like, could those even exist? Dry seasons lead us deeper into relationship. And if we choose to engage with God through them, through the waiting, then we are led deeper and deeper into desperation and dependence. Things that are just so absolutely crucial to life-giving relationship with him. There is no joy, there is no peace in God without desperation, dependence, and surrender. And so dry seasons lead us into that surrender. Lastly, dry seasons strengthen us. Before Jesus starts his ministry, he endures 40 days of fasting and prayer in the desert. And then the devil comes at him when when it appears that he's at his weakest, he's tired and hungry, when in fact Jesus is actually at his strongest at that point. And he totally owns Satan. And then it's then that he begins his ministry. Dry seasons strengthen us because we are drawn in closer to God. We are drawn into scripture. We are drawn into prayer. And, and so it's only when we're walking closely with God that we can fight the lies of the enemy with truth. Otherwise, it's very logical. We're simply ill-equipped and unprepared. And then Satan's job becomes really easy. Dry seasons strengthen us because we discover our weakness, but then grow to depend on his strength. We pray with more desperation. Dry seasons strengthen us because they obliterate any false ideas of what faith actually is. Dry seasons kill the idea that faith is an emotional high or some intellectual state. As author and pastor Dane Ortland writes, our experience of the Spirit's joy does not define our assurance of the Spirit's presence. In other words, our feelings don't define our faith. And so dry seasons strengthen us because they lead us into real faith. We can shed all of our misconceptions about what life with Jesus is actually like, enter real relationship with him, and then finally take steps forward in our journeys. So dry seasons set our expectations straight and present us with reality. The reality is that in our spiritual journeys, in our relationship with Jesus, and in the stories that God is weaving in each of our lives, there will be dry seasons as well as fruitful seasons. There will be ebbs and flows, highs and lows in our experience of him. But this does not change the fact that he is always present. And this does not change his love for us. The desert is where we must all go. Because dry seasons play a pivotal role in our growth. 
Just as we learn more from losing than we do from winning, much of our growth takes place in dry seasons. So let's go back to where we started. On the road of life, how do we finish well? How do we, like Paul, end in victory, arms up at the finish line? How do we reach the end of our days? I know some of you are only like 13 years old, but how do we reach the end of our days in joyful relationships? Sean's like, I'm taking notes. Uh, How do we reach the end of our days in joyful relationship and communion with Jesus? Full of love and assurance and not bitterness, jadedness, and faithlessness. Well, friends, it starts with learning to wait well. It starts with learning how to wait well. Back to Psalm 130, verses 5 to 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. The psalm begins in verse 1 with a cry. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. So how do we wait well? Step one. Embrace the reality and necessity of dry seasons. Especially when it feels rough, because it does. And this is why I love that this psalm begins with a cry. The psalm about waiting begins with a cry because waiting is not fun. But embrace the fact that you will enter dry seasons probably more than once and that they are unavoidable, but also that they are so good and crucial for you. Dry seasons are tough, and they can be prolonged. But if we choose to work with God, these seasons then lay the groundwork and plant the seeds for the fruitful seasons ahead. What you do in this season has a lot to do with how you celebrate in the next season. So embrace reality. Ditch any fluffy, nice but not so real, preconceived notions of faith and life as a follower of Jesus that you might have. Tear away the misconceptions and embrace the ways in which God loves and works instead of the ways in which you want him to love and work. This is hard. This is surrender, which is why this is real faith. Letting God love and work and trusting that his methods are far better than our own. Along the same vein, step two, learn his language. When you get to know someone or when you're dating someone, the things to pick up on, take note, the things to pick up on are their love languages. How do they like to be loved and how do they in turn love? Early on, I learned that one of Amanda's love languages was gift giving. She would always outgift me. We, we were poor college students, um, and some of the gifts she gave me, even like within the first six months of dating, would just, just felt super extravagant. And that's how I knew how all in she was. It's part of how I knew she loved me. Our relationship with God is no different. We must learn how he loves. 
Otherwise, we'll be blind to his love because we expect it to come a certain way when in fact it comes in a far better way. His love is always better than our version of love. And this is, this is one of the most important things about reading the Bible. It's more than ancient history. It's more than fun stories and weird laws. And when you immerse yourself in Scripture, you are spending time with and getting to know a living, breathing being. You are getting to know God, the embodiment of perfect love. And so learn God's love language. Learn how he works. Learn what he wants to do in you so that you can recognize it when it happens. For starters, God wants to draw us in. He wants us close to him. He wants us in relationship with him. He wants to form us. And his plans always have a way of humbling us. That's how you really know it's God. That's his usual MO. And it's all because he loves us. Learn how he loves and works. Learn his language. And that leads us to step three. Pray and watch. Pray and watch. Most of the time, it's easy to pray and forget. We treat prayer like a slow cooker or an instant pot. You know, we set it and forget it. But prayer doesn't work that way. A true prayer draws us in and beckons us to participate. We pray, but then we must keep our eyes open to how he answers. Because most of the time, it will be outside of our expectation. So often, we pray with with tunnel vision. You know, we pray with an idea of how we want God to work, but then when he works in a different way, instead of seeing it, we just think he doesn't answer our prayers. Paul Miller writes in his book, A Praying Life, our prayer doesn't work excuse often means, God, you didn't do my will in my way in my time. But once we have an idea of how God loves and how God works, we'll have a much clearer picture of what answered prayer looks like. Do you see how spending time with God in Scripture goes hand in hand with praying? You really can't have one without the other. If you want to hear him, you must learn his language. Lastly, step four. Stay in the race. Stay in the race. Embrace the reality of desert seasons. Lean into the strength of the Holy Spirit and into the support and encouragement of community and stick it out. Wait well and wait intentionally. Because the waiting is the hardest part. We hate waiting. This is why Dallas Willard states, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You don't want to wait. But God is doing something. He's always doing something. That's truth. But we want to pass him by. And we're really good at missing things. So friends, stick it out. Embrace the dry seasons. Enter the desert. Pray and watch with open minds and open hearts as you wait. 
Learn God's love language. Learn how he works and what he wants to do in you specifically. If you're in a dry season right now, know that you are exactly where you need to be. It may not feel like it, but you are being loved by God right now. And you can be sure that you are being formed by God right now. So embrace the season. Receive his love. Watch for his work. And then partner with him. Let's stand and pray. Father God, you work in amazing and mysterious and confusing and oftentimes very uncomfortable ways. But we thank you that 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 doesn't change your love for us. And in fact, it proves your love for us. Because your version of love is, is infinitely better than our version of love. And so God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you that you are just always present with us, always working in us. And God, we just ask that you would help us to, to see and to learn your love language. Help us to take your invitation to just wait on you, to wait prayerfully and watchfully. Lead us into real faith. Lead us into surrender and dependence, God, trusting that this is the road to joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.